and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast that's all about hitting rewind and occasionally fast forward on the bands and scenes we love. I'm Sarah Jane Kemp and this my co-host is Rick Martin. So we're starting off this week with some sad news, aren't we Rick? Yeah, we are. I mean, no one's died, but a fairly uh, a fairly big band uh, or duo, I guess you'd call them, is split. And I'm sure the listeners will be aware of this. But yeah, Daft Punk are no more. Uh, the robot-headed duo have kind of retired from music, I think, was the statement they put out, and which means they've effectively split up because there's only two of them after an amazing kind of 28 years in the business. Um, and it's had quite a big impact on the music world, I think, since it was announced. Um don't know about you, Sarah. I was reading some stuff in The Guardian, Alexis Petridis, saying that they are the most influential pop musicians of the 20th century. It's a pretty bold claim, isn't it? Um, but do you th- you, I bet you think that's got some merit, because you're a pretty big fan of the band, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've, I've loved them since I was a kid. You know, I've kind of grown up with them. They've been going that long. I'm 33. No, I'm 34. Sorry. Gosh, slip. Um, and they're 28 years old. So, it, you know, I was really, really young when they first started. Um, and I've definitely grown up singing singing all the anthems, the Daft Punk anthems. But do you know what I found really weird is kind of looking back over their discography and seeing that they'd only done four studio albums in that time. And yet they've managed to be so kind of influential within the space. And, and they had this kind of cult following that um but that you know that they were just kind of magical and um yeah I, I when you it's funny you say about the death there though Rick so no no one's died but I do genuinely believe that when artists um artists split and um there's no you know you know there's going to be no more music from them that that is a bit of a time to mourn and I think a lot of people will be going through a bit of a mourning period now thinking um you know they're never coming back and we'll never ever get to see any of their creations ever again and to me that's sad it's funny you mentioned that because the thing I always think of when we talk about you know bands splitting and people mourning is in the 90s when take that split up and they were setting up like hotlines for people to ring for for counseling because it was that big i don't think anyone set one up for for daft punk fans but i do get what you mean yeah it is it is it is sad for fans um i suppose i'd like i think at the same time it's a good chance to kind of think about their importance and and why they were so great and i think you touched on there the kind of um was like the mysterious image that they had? That's probably the first thing that strikes you about them, isn't it? That they almost had an anti-image in the fact that they had the robot heads. And um, I mean, to the point that, I mean, most people would know the name Daft Punk, but I'd be very surprised if many people would know that it was actually Thomas Bangelter and Guy Manuel de Homem Cristo. I mean, people barely know the names. And I would say they could probably walk down the street now in London and very few people would recognise them, would they? Unless you were seriously into your music and knew exactly what they looked like. So they can probably retire now to, to a life of anonymity, largely, can't they? Well, yeah, it's like the Banksy of music, right? So, uh, you, you know, we've probably been in the same festival fields as them multiple times, but we would have no idea. We might have even shared a hug or a drink with them at one point at a festival and would have had no idea. And I think they probably liked that way. Um, one of the things, actually, speaking of The Guardian, one of the articles I'd read, which I loved, and it was it's just so Daft Punk, is um, in 2013 when they were about to release their album Random Access Memories, uh, they they wanted to launch it from a regional Australian town barely anyone had heard the name of, which was called Wewa, <laughs> hmm. uh, which was dubbed the, cap- uh, dubbed the cotton capital of Australia because it's a really small town with a population of 2,000 in New South Wales. And basically they said that we're gonna, it, was, it was kind of like a village fair um, that they decided randomly to to launch their album and I think actually a couple of days before sadly it got leaked um but but still 
you know, thousands of uh, uh, Daft Punk fans armed with their own homemade helmets descended on this kind of small little Australian town. Uh, and some of the cafes and food trucks that were that were around the town at the time were kind of made a nod to it and said, you can, you know, you could pick up punk pies at the bakery or visit the butcher for random access rizzles or hmm. daft pork sausages and things like that and it was just so on brand and and i think one of the things that this they kind of built from this was that um clearly it was expect the unexpected and since that point everyone was always waiting for the next time for daft punk to to surprise us again but it never came and now it will never come and it's kind of like you know can you not remember when that you know every time glastonbury was going to be on it's like who's gonna who's gonna headline oh it's gonna be daft punk it was never daft punk um and yeah and that to me is sad i was sort of waiting waiting for this kind of next show that they're never going to play now yeah and you say that and you know you're you're, you're kind of in mourning i guess i'm interested to know you know what which of their tunes were you into which of their albums were you into uh i think my favorite one has to be discovery and that's just probably because of my you know the age that i was at um at the time uh digital love harder better faster stronger you know just absolute tunes one more time i think that is the ultimate kind of dance tune of my childhood um you know just seeing seeing that video um yeah on mtv it was just very kind of evokes a lot of memories of, of, of childhood for me but i can't deny when they hooked up with nile rogers um to create random access memories what an amazing collaboration that was you know i've talked about before about how much i'm in love with pharrell williams and <laughs> so get lucky you know is still an absolute banger um yeah i don't know one of the things i love as well is they sort of went from the very kind of uh, french electronic uh, sound and then made it a bit more kind of funky and soul uh, focused uh, kind of towards the end of their career but I just don't think you can fault any of it Rick what about you? Well you say you can't fault any of it I suppose I, I, I sort of do personally I mean look first thing to say yeah I, I loved a lot of their early stuff you know Discovery again was kind of their breakthrough album really it was the one where they, they went from being I guess the, the cool kids to the what to the album that everyone um, owned. I was quite a big fan of Robot Rock, which came a bit further down the line. It was on their second or third. It was on the third album. And when I used to, uh, I used to DJ in Manchester around the time, and I'd put that on as one of my kind of dance floor staples. It's funny because we were talking off air, and you said there's no way you can you can dance to it. We clearly don't dance the same way. I mean, I can barely dance, right? But I think there is a specific dance to Robot Rock that just involves punching the air in in kind of time with the tune. Yeah, I mean, I, I vividly, vividly remember people playing that tune um, and being on the dance floor and going, oh, I just can't dance to this. Even though it's electronic music, it was just too slow. So you're sort of like, it's almost like you were dancing in slow motion and you just looked so shit that that was the time, that was a song, you had to go to the bar and get a drink hmm. <laughs> and then go back to the dance floor and something a bit more upbeat was played. I did say there that you could fault them. And yeah, I think Random Access Memories is one I was less of a fan of in the sense that, I mean, I do appreciate now rogers you know i'm a massive fan of now rogers no do i think that he's you know one of the touchstones of music someone who changed the direction of music in in the 70s i mean absolutely but yeah stuff like get lucky to me sounds like the sort of music you would hear on friday night in a kind of media agency or pr agency bar so probably in a way it's what it what ruined it for me was the people who then got into the band as a result it's hard to explain what i mean unless you've worked in that world and every time you walk into a media agency party or you're watching a media agency showreel, it's got a uh, get lucky in the background. So that's less of a problem with them and probably more of a problem with me. 
Yeah, and then you've got things that, are, you know, things on that album. Um, I agree that is very, um, you know, mainstream, I guess, which I don't, I don't disagree with at all. But then you've got songs like Giorgio by Morodo. It's, it's <laughs> the song features a monologue by the Italian musician Giorgio Morodo. I think he goes, Gior- I can't even do it in an Italian accent, Giorgio Morodo, and that's really bad. Um, <laughs> so he speaks about on on the song. Now the re- re- the reason I say it like that is because they brought out a load of content that surrounded the the release of the album. Um, of people who had been kind of on the album and featured and and, and I, what he was one of them and just like listening to him speaking was just so lovely um, in his Italian accent. But he speaks about his early life and musical career on the song. And, mm. you know, what they've done is they've got an, an amazing legend within the music industry and kind of celebrated that and put it on a track. And I don't think a lot of people, unless you're a fan of music, would actually know that. You probably just hear the song and think it's a guy talking. Um, but that's that's one of the reasons I think that album's really, really great, because it is so different. You know, you've got you've got Get Lucky, then you've got that song. No, yeah, I, I do. I do kind of hear what you're saying there. And I guess, you know, we said earlier that there is no hotline being set up for for fans of the band to get counselling. But look, if it helps listeners, why not get in touch with us and tell us your favourite Daft Punk tracks and we'll talk about it on a on a future show. So remind us, how do listeners get in touch with the show? Sure. Well, you can listeners, you can get in touch with me, not Rick, because I will help you with the morning because I'm, I'm morning with you. But anyway, yeah, you can email us on demotapespod at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at demotapespod. Um, and our personal Instagram and Twitter, I am at I am Sarah Jane Kemp on Instagram. And Rick, you are at Rick underscore J underscore Martin at Twitter. That's right. Anyway, I don't think there's a way this week to to really segue from Daft Punk to the main subject of our episode this week is there which is the long blondes can you do it Rick so I like a challenge and you, you said to me off air there's no way you're going to be able to link these two but I actually think it's possible so I'm going to have a go so the long blondes uh, we're going to talk about in depth on this episode now were formed in Sheffield in the 2000s and people who listen to one of our last episodes will know that Heaven 17 and some of those electro bands were also from Sheffield. So there's that kind of Sheffield electro link. And who knows, maybe Daft Punk, in turn, were influenced by some of that Sheffield electro stuff, which went on to inform some of the long blonde stuff later in their career. So yes, in short, yes, I think there is there is a bit of a link. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I did hear him talking about the 70s disco stuff in uh, in the interview, which, uh, so yeah, well done, Rick. You've, uh, you've, you've done it. But I know you've got an interview with Dorian Cox a bit later on in the show, but I guess Sheffield is is where I wanted to start talking to you about, um, you know, in terms of the long blondes, because you've mentioned it on some of the previous previous episodes that you, you were there, um, and particularly around the Arctic Monkeys one. Um, you, you're there in your uni days, um, but I don't think I really know you much more than that. You know, I was around at the time as well, because I'm from Nottingham, so I used to go up to Sheffield every, every so often to go to some of the club nights, but um, I didn't live there, so I want to find a bit more uh, about that and how you stumbled across the long blondes. Um, but first the question is rick do you have a desert island discs intro for them i mean of course i write every well write one for every episode now pretty much don't i so yeah I'm, I'm, I'm gonna crack into this and then yeah absolutely i can answer some of those questions you've got around my time in sheffield because you're right i haven't really talked about it on the show too much it was only three years of my life to be fair so it's not it wasn't the bulk of my kind of time at enemy but an important phase but yeah the desert island disc style intro which we do on every episode now because i love the way that kind of Kirsty Young used to do this on uh, Desert Island Disc, less said about kind of the current presenter, the better. But um, yeah, so I'm going to crack into it. Long Blondes are an indie rock five piece formed in Sheffield, originally around two couples plus singer Kate Jackson. 
The couples being guitarist Dorian Cox and Emma Chaplin and bassist Rini Hollis and drummer Screech Louder. Praising the music press as much for their Oxfam glamour look as their smart indie pop tracks, they released their debut album Someone to Drive You Home in 2006 and follow-up Couples in 2008, before splitting shortly after when Dorian tragically suffered a stroke. Something I'll talk to him about a little bit later in the interview. I mean, yeah, it's, that's something I didn't know, actually. It gets a bit, a little bit deep towards the end. But when did you first see the Long Blondes? Yeah, so it wouldn't have been as soon as I turned up in Sheffield. I think they formed around kind of 2003, 2004. Um, but yeah, the first scene, I guess, that I became aware of in Sheffield would have been the Arctic Monkeys kind of led guitar scene, you know, Arctic Monkeys, Milburn, Bromhead's Jacket, kind of that lot. So I imagine Long Blondes probably came on my radar about 2004 maybe 2005 I think it'd be more like 2005 that they um they they came on the radar and I think what was so interesting about them was they were like nothing else that was going on in Sheffield at the time and I think you know there was almost like that stereotype of Sheffield you know once Arctic Monkeys emerged there was a kind of glut of bands that came after them that kind of shared that kind of social commentary and the kind of jam style sort of guitars and they they were nothing like that and they were almost like a gateway into the kind of underground scene of Sheffield there was a whole other kind of indie scene that maybe didn't go as national and actually a lot of the bands didn't seem to want it to go national they wanted to kind of stay as kind of a, a local concern and yeah when I first saw them I think what the first thing was great was yeah they were just nothing like everyone else even from the obvious point of view of kind of the gender split you know three girls two boys um, and a very different sort of sound a sound that maybe nodded back to pulp who were obviously also from sheffield but you know a lot of those kind of 90s and 80s kind of indie groups um, and yeah they were, they were just a kind of i guess a breath of fresh air at the time i have to say rick uh i will have seen the long blondes before you even were the, before they were even a twinkle in your eye i have to say that do you know so where i saw them so where did you see them? So I saw them at that gig uh, that I went to see Franz Ferdinand at the secret gig at Brudenell Social Club. And I've just done a little Google on this to see what the, what date it was. And it was actually the 19th of April in 2004. And I'm pretty sure, yeah, it was it was because when you were saying, oh, they're around about the same time as Arctic Monkeys. And I know you hadn't seen Arctic Monkeys for about six months. And I know that this Franz Ferdinand gig was before then. I think it's interesting you say that you saw them outside of Sheffield. Because I think that's another thing. Even when they were unsigned, they were touring around quite a lot. They were... You know, they played outside of Sheffield, so they would play places like Leeds. They'd also play quite a lot in London. I think they got quite known, quite well known in uh, in kind of East London and that sort of scene. So yeah, I think that's maybe what kind of helped their some of their early success is that they were ambitious enough that they wanted to get out of Sheffield, and and sort of um, yeah, spread the word a bit further and wider. Yeah, and I do remember after first seeing them, actually, that's where um, I think a lot of the inspiration for the way people, particularly women, dressed, um, at, you know, seeing the kind of Kate Jackson pencil skirt um, belt combo, which was definitely something I wore and all of my friends at the point um, at the time. It was kind of a bit more glamorous, uh, which which was really, really good. But going, going back to Sheffield, um, you talked, uh, well, you talked about this in the interview, so I won't kind of spoil it, but, uh, you know, how they fit in the scene well a scene that I think you created didn't you Rick being an enemy um or, or or didn't they fit in the scene so like what you know what what was what was it like from your perspective well I'd never be so arrogant to say that I created a scene I think I merely kind of reported on it although I suppose what I've never really spoke about in the show before is yes to a degree enemy and the bands didn't really like this to a degree I think a lot of the time but you did kind of invent scenes you did knit bands together that didn't have a lot to do with each other give it a snappy name because what you were actually trying to do is well a 
shine a light on the city you were, you were living in and try and, you know, Arctic monkeys make it big. So then what's the next thing? You're trying to shine a light on other stuff that's going on. Also gets you work as well. Like, you know, I, I won't lie and say, if I can invent a scene that gets me a few pieces in the enemy in the next few months, I was, um, was kind of going to do it. But yeah, they, they definitely didn't fit in with the Arctic monkeys kind of guitar scene. No way. And, you know, in fact, in the interview, I, I won't spoil it too much, but we talk about, you know, a gig where the Long Blondes supported Arctic monkeys and it really didn't go well and they didn't go down well um, with their fans. But like I say, yeah, there was kind of an underbelly to Sheffield, kind of centered around the Razor Stiletto club night. It was kind of where all the kind of indie and electro sort of misfit kids would uh, would go. And yeah, there was a whole kind of stable of those those bands that, yeah, never really went much bigger than than being around Sheffield or maybe the odd mention in the enemy from me, which they didn't really even want me to do. Um, but that, I think that was what was exciting about Sheffield as a city. And again, I don't want to spoil this in the, from the interview with Dorian, but you know, Sheffield was more like a village than a city in a way. You know, you had these kind of this small group of venues in the, in the sort of city centre. And, and it was, you know, you, on, a, on a typical night out, you could go and three, see three or four gigs and it'd only take you five minutes to kind of get between them. In, in a way, it reminded me a little bit of Nottingham when I lived in Nottingham a bit further down the line that you had this kind of really close-knit sort of group of venues and, and people you'd see the same people at the same gigs or you know oh, every few days you know 100% and in, in Nottingham it was like you could go out on your own and people frequently did go out on their own and in the in the you know knowing that they would bump into a load of people they knew so it was yeah and, and all the venues were you know about maximum 10 minutes um between them but we did have a super super venue which people never really ended up leaving because it was the rescue rooms which had kind of three rooms and then stealth joined to it as well so it was like it was like a playground it was amazing but yeah enough that we're not talking about Nottingham today we're talking about Sheffield so do you want to tell the story uh behind the interview Rick yeah we've been trying to get Dorian to agree to an interview for a little while actually and it was just hard to align diaries so I was actually quite looking forward to doing this but it actually landed at a pretty good moment because about two weeks before I recorded the interview, uh, a guy called Omar Solomon got in touch with me saying he was writing a book about the Sheffield scene of the time, uh, which I, I think was actually, it's one of those things I'm, I'm amazed someone hasn't already done. You might say, well, you were there. Why didn't you do it? But I was only there for three years. So I don't feel like I could have given um, kind of the scene the attention it deserved because I wouldn't have been there for the three or four years afterwards that he's probably covering as well but yeah what that did was it helped me with kind of remembering a lot of the stories from that time you know I, I spoke to him for the book and we had quite a, a long chat so yeah I guess a looking forward to seeing his book come out but b it definitely helped me uh doing this interview because he'd, he'd kind of jog my memory on stuff that I hadn't really thought about for you know 10 12 13 14 years you know yeah, and it is quite a long time ago, so we, we pr probably need those prompts now, don't we, Rick? But, um, you know, it's good to hear. I, I actually hadn't really heard about this uh, book before you told me about it, so it'd be really interested to read that. Um, but that sets the scene, so let's get Dorian on the line, shall we? Yeah, we should, and I should probably, though, uh, have an apology up front on this. So, obviously, we aim for Hollywood-level production quality, but this one probably isn't quite under that i think dorian was maybe on his 3g or 4g rather than wi-fi so it does get a bit glitchy in places the way i think about it it's almost like we're speaking down a time phone to dorian in 2004 rather than it being kind of an interview now but yeah you should be able to get the gist from it it's it's uh it's robot rock it's like daft punk robot rock right love it love the tenuous link there rick anyway yeah here's dorian cox 
So on the line, I've got Dorian Cox, guitarist and principal songwriter in, for my money, one of the most important British indie groups of the last 20 years, uh, The Long Blondes. Thanks for joining us tonight, Dorian. How are you? I'm very good. That's a very kind thing to say as well. Thank you. And yeah, I think you're one of those bands, actually, that I think are really well remembered amongst people who know, if you know what I mean, people who are in the know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, do you know what? That's what um, I feel like we've taken from it. Um, that's a really nice thing to say, and that's... That is, of course, that's important. That That's important to me. I mean, we never, you know, I don't know, we never sold as many records as, say, Razorlite, I don't think, but I think we're more fondly remembered among certain circles. You've got bands like the Velvet Underground where they said, you know, everyone that went to see them would then go and form a band, and I think you did kind of spark a scene in Sheffield, and we'll, we'll come on to that music in a minute, but um, far be it from us to do kind of gimmicky intro questions for podcasts, because you've done enough of them in recent months, but... Given we're recording this interview on Pancake Day, I want to know, what, what does Dorian Cox have on his pancakes? Dorian Cox doesn't eat pancakes because they're horrible and everyone knows they're horrible. And it's bizarre that we, as a nation, like, you, when you're a kid, you're made to do that. But we're adults. We don't have to have pancakes. Hmm. So, like, I don't eat pancakes because they taste horrendous. <laughs> I think they're one of those things that you eat and then you regret later when you're, uh, I don't know, it repeats on you a little bit with all that flour right. and all that kind of stodge. It's, it's like one of them weird things that people eat once a year because they feel like they've got to. So I guess it's a bit like sprouts with Christmas dinner. You know, people feel like they've got to, but no one, if you ask them people individually, they go, no, I don't like them. So mm. No, I, th I think that's a fair take. And I was trying to work out, um, you know, did a bit of online stalking. Like, where where do you live these days? You know, you're associated with, with Sheffield. I don't think you're from originally from Sheffield, right? You're from somewhere oh, else. But where, yes, where, where uh, do you live uh, now? Uh, I'm in Manchester, the, uh, the, the, best, the best city in the world. So you've done the absolute reverse of me then, because I moved to Sheffield yeah. from Manchester and you've gone the other way yeah. at the Snake Pass to... Uh, so which part of Manchester are you in? That's right, uh, in, um, in Charlton. Oh, nice. Uh, but I, 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 it was one of the best moves I ever made, in all honesty. Like, I mean, obviously... I love Sheffield, but I know we will be talking about various strands of the Sheffield scene during this interview. But yeah, Manchester is um, just a great city, really, really inspiring city. Like everyone I know is doing a band or they're doing a, something, you know, and it's like, um, I just find that I really, it's really energised me to kind of get back into doing stuff, really. And I guess Manchester's probably a slightly more diverse city in terms of music, you know, Sheffield. We'll come on to this later. I think Sheffield was more diverse than people gave it credit. But at the end yeah. of the day, it was almost like a village micro scene in, in a way compared to Manchester, which has about 100 different scenes kind of going on all at once. So how long have you been in Manchester? And do you kind of feel sort of enconced into that, into that scene over there? Or are you a bit of an island? Um, yeah, I mean, I've been here for, oh God, um, a few years now. I mean, maybe about five years, something like that. Um, it's kind of hard to... It's got to that point, obviously, with lockdown, it's hard to judge time. It's like, what is it, 2021? Yeah, I've, I've probably been here for about five years, something like that. Um, but, yeah, I do feel, I, I mean, I feel part of a few different scenes. That's the kind of exciting thing about it. Exactly like you say about Sheffield, I love it, but um, it almost had a village kind of feel to it. Um, whereas with Manchester, I feel everyone knows everyone, but everyone has their own little scene, which mm. I find. As I say, personally, for me, 
I find it a lot more inspiring, really. And you know, obviously, you you know, you're. I kind of hit rewind on your career in in Sheffield. So when when did you originally kind of move to Sheffield? I know no one in the Long Blondes is actually from the city of Sheffield, right? You all landed there. That's right. Um, so I moved to Sheffield in August 1999, which seems like God. That seems a long time ago. Well, it was a long time ago, but. Yeah, we all landed there in August '99, um, and yeah, then we kind of met each other through various different ways, really. Because I'd I'd read this 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 thing that you you know when you decided to form the band with you know with Kate and uh, Screech and and Emma uh, and Rini was that you you didn't even own a guitar at the time. You went out and got a, a guitar from a from a cash converter. So, I mean. I, I, I think when you, when you when you get a choice between the legend and the truth, always print the legend. But what is the actual? What's what's the truth around that? <laughs> well, that's the thing. I I agree. Always print the legend, but that is in fact actually true. Like there's quite a lot of. Um, I'm with you. Always print the legend, but actually a lot of the stuff surrounding the early days of the Long Blondes is actually true. So yeah, that that generally did happen. So I was living with Catherine at the time. Um, and this was before we'd even thought about starting a band. Um, we just kind of moved in together because we're both at uni together and we've both got jobs in Sheffield afterwards. Um, and literally one Sunday night, and I, I can remember it clear as day, and it's such a life-changing thing when I think about it. She'd had to go home, which for her is Wakefield. Um, mm. And, I, you know, uh, basically she had to um, help clean out of grandma's house I think as far as I know um and yeah she came home like on a Sunday night just as I was putting the kettle on and she was like oh she just turned up with this like 1960s bass guitar and just goes off I found this in my grandma's attic she was like should we start a band I was like amazing um <laughs> and literally I mean she was I think everyone in the band would agree that actually Rini was kind of the bedrock of it really because she um never had any uh, never had any airs and graces about it she just and I can it's honestly true I can remember she just had this at uh, base a little practice amp plugged it in and without knowing what she was doing whilst I was making a cup of tea she was pottering away and it, I was just like that sounds amazing that sounds great right you're the bass player I'll buy a guitar tomorrow um and I did I, I bought a guitar from her I was in Leeds actually and I bought a guitar for 50 pound from her cash converters and mm. again I had no idea what I was doing but then that was the I guess that was the impetus because really didn't know what she was doing she basically just plugged it in and started mucking about with it and that made me realize that you don't really need to know what you're doing as long as you can make a sound that sounds good you mm. kind of learn as you go and so that's that's honestly that's that's exactly what happened I just bought a cheap guitar she had a cheap bass uh, Emma had a cheap keyboard that she got from a charity shop somewhere. Um, and then we just sort of, it just, it, it's weird. It, it didn't take long at all. I mean, um, I think it's one of those things that once, it's this un, indefinable thing that band, that good bands have. When you all get together in a room, it just, just comes together. Mm, mm. And that is, that, that really is, that really is what happened. I think it's interesting that you talk there about Rini being kind of the bedrock of it, because I think what's maybe underrated sometimes about Long Blonde's tunes is the bass lines. Like you think about 
giddy stratospheres the way the the bass is played in that is is so interesting and the way it intertwines everything else in the song but you can't that song doesn't work without the way that i don't know how you i mean i'm not a guitarist or a bassist but how you've got that bass to sound it's such a key component so i think it's interesting you say that oh yeah definitely i mean i mean and that's from the fact that a lot of my favorite music i mean obviously a lot of post-punk the bass lines are fantastic um you know you listen to something like pill and the bass is amazing and it kind of allows because it's so rock solid it allows all the other instruments to kind of do what they want over the top mm. um I, I really like that giddy structures is a great example because we were really into like i i love love 70s disco and in a way that i think people think that 70s disco is cheesy but I, it's really not i think it's really rock solid hard music and i'm glad we had a rhythm section where so really just Rini's bass lines were always rock solid and screech never really gets the um he never gets applauded for how good his drumming was because he never did anything fancy he wasn't trying to be keith moon or something mm. he just did did a basic disco beat that you could dance to and that's that's all we needed i didn't want someone showing off like no one in our band showed off that was the most important thing it's like right and Giddy Stratus is a great example of that to me. You listen to that, you could listen to just the bass and the drums on their own, and you'd you'd still be dancing. No, that's 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 totally true. And I think the other thing we're talking about before around everything kind of being true around the formation of the Long Blondes. But for me, it was almost too good to be true that you were formed around two couples, right? Because yeah. there's so many yeah. bands then and now, right, where it's four lads. It's the usual story. I mean, Artie Monkeys are the classic one. Four exactly. lads meet at school. They go in the practice room, and that's fine as a backstory. But oh, it's a hell, it's, it's a yeah. hell of a lot more of a backstory when you've got two couples and Kate Jackson sort of stood in the middle of it. So, yeah, yeah, did those relationships did they come about before the band, or as a result of uh, the band, or well, some mix of the two? Bit of a mix of the two, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, um, yeah, I was going out with Emma, and uh, Rina was going out with Screech. Um, I mean. That is, again, you're right, that is, when I think about that, that's quite a strange, um, that's a strange mix. Yeah, like you say, most bands, and particularly in Sheffield around that time, obviously, it tended to be four lads who met at school. So we were always, we were always outsiders, really, and that's, that's fine, that's what our position was anyway, really. Um, I think we were happy to be outsiders because even though i liked for example i liked the tactic monkeys i still do um and some of those other bands had songs that i quite liked but we were nothing like them you know we weren't we weren't for lads wearing adidas tracksuit tops at the end of the day we were we were a completely different kettle of fish really so we were happy to be perceived outside that really yeah and i think it's interesting you say that because again i've heard other interviews with you where You've been asked about what was it like to be part of a scene with the Harrisons and Little Man Tate. And I sort of scratch my head when I hear when I hear that. Being in Sheffield myself, for me, I think yeah. there were three key scenes in Sheffield at the time. You had yeah. the Arctic Monkeys, lads with yeah. guitars and polo shirts. You had a metal scene that doesn't often get yeah. talked about, but there was a really some interesting metal and kind of sort of um sort of the heavier side of rock all kind of centered around um corporation. Then you had this That's other right. indie scene, indie electro yeah. scene that was kind of, I would say, centred yes. on Razor Stiletto, stuff like that. There you go, and you, exactly. You had, and even though Sheffield was a village, I mean, you had nothing really other than you shared a bill a few times with some of those bands to do with them. So 
what was it like, I guess, emerging at that time with all that going on over there that's getting the attention when actually there's this whole other scene going on on the underground almost in Sheffield? Yeah. Um, well, I think, um, I mean, like exactly like you say, we definitely felt more um, in common with that. There was a slightly electronic scene, definitely. Um, and I mean, for example, the first band we saw play, it was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Um, in Sheffield were Pink Grease and they were they were like my ultimate band. It's like there was a bit of bit of rock music in there, a bit of um you know, a bit of um the cramps, there was a bit of New York dolls. Those were all the kind of influences that, in my opinion, at that time, a good band should have those influences. Um mm. and so I remember seeing all that. Um and I think everyone on that scene, so you had around that Razor Stiletto scene, that's a great example. So you had other bands, so obviously you had Pink Grease, you had bands like Kings of Long Arms, you had Heim, um, you had Fat Truckers. They were all really interesting, but quite diverse. And I think we all respected each other more than hung out with each other. Um, okay. So we were um, we were very much, um, the Long Blondes were very much in Ireland, really. And... It's sort of weird that simultaneously on the other side of town, really, you had this kind of more laddish scene starting. Um, I mean, uh, um, to be honest with you, the only the, the first time I really realised that was happening was um, when we went and did the um, New Yorkshire thing for NME, um <laughs> Which uh, I, I, I assumed you were going to touch on. Obviously, we we're just speaking for the interview, um, but that was a real like, what's going on? It was like we turned up, and then it was just apart from that, it was just a bunch of lads wearing Fred Perry's. Um, mm. And I can, I, I can actually, and I'm not going to slag any of those bands off because all of those bands have got at least one song that I kind of think is all right. Um, and but I can distinctly remember. Um, I think it's Jubby from Harrison's, and he kind of came up to me whilst we were about to do this photo shoot, and he was like prodding me in the chest, like going, "You're not even fucking from Sheffield. What are you doing here?" Kind of thing. And I was like, <laughs> All right. "Well, like," and that to me just summed up how much of an island we were, because we immediately got the feeling that those bands were very happy to be from Sheffield and stay in Sheffield and kind of be local heroes which we never we never wanted that i wanted to go i wanted our band to reach as far as it possibly could and that didn't include just playing you know um sheffield boardwalk every weekend kind of thing mm, mm. i think we just had a sense that we were even though we tended to be you know all right we lived in the same city but we we wanted something different from it really no, I, th I think that's absolutely fair. I know exactly the sort of bands that you're that you're talking about there. And I was at that shoot, and I think there was an uncomfortableness for a lot of the bands of that. Even Bromhead's Jacket, I think, yeah. pretty much refused to do it and then got sort of railroaded into doing it. The drummer refused to turn up. They brought a dog along instead. I remember, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> and, and for me, it was, I guess it was quite frustrating because what, I, what I'd actually been trying to do, I moved to Sheffield in 2004, and I was just trying to find ways to get them in the mag. And... You know, writing for enemy, sometimes yeah. you have to make up a scene that doesn't exist to shine more of a light. Yeah. yeah. What, what I wasn't trying to do was lump everyone into one scene. It was actually yeah. to say there's something happening in Sheffield and there's about four different 
I think that's maybe what they were going for with the gangs thing, but I don't think the way that it was presented really sold it as, you know, there's a gang with the long blondes, but you're an island anyway. There's a gang with bromeds. It was sold as you were all part of the a very strange looking gang that had, you know, a girl with a beret and then a guy yeah. in, a, in a, you know, in a, in a Fred Perry, in a Fred Perry sort of uh, polo it does shirt. Look, so. It does look quite strange, doesn't it? As I actually, because I've been writing stuff, I've gone through and I found that copy of that enemy the other day and I just thought, actually, that does look quite strange. Um, strange setup of bands. But weirdly, on the other page, you've got the same thing, like the Leeds version of it. And actually, we used to, we tended to hang out in Leeds a lot more than we did in Sheffield, really, because, um, again, so in in Sheffield, you had the club Razor Saletta, where all the, what I would call the more arty bands hung out. In Leeds, you had a similar night, it was called Pigs, mm, and mm. used to go over to that, because all the bands, um, the Leeds scene was very arty at that time. Um, and it was also, well... It was also very hedonistic. Um, <laughs> and I can't believe that um, people who were in that scene are still alive, quite frankly. <laughs> mm, mm. Oh, no, and and, and uh, it's funny you say that. When I hear Giddy Stratospheres now, we are talking about the song earlier, you know, and we'll come on to it as in terms of talking about the album a little bit later on. But Giddy Stratospheres, to me, still now, I don't know, I don't know how to put this, it definitely unlocks some serotonin in my head when I hear that because it reminds me of those nights, things like Razor Stiletto, club nights in places like like the plug where you'd hear that and it's it's when i say it's got a danceable quality to it not in what you'd call kind of like a traditional danceable way there's just something very hedonistic about the kind of guitar and bass sound you got on that yeah yeah, yeah absolutely well absolutely again and that that was born from our love of, of 70s disco because a lot of those 70s disco records like donna summer or anything anything like that they sound so hedonistic mm. And mm. like you say, even just the sound of the instruments, there's something about it that, um, you know, you can imagine you're at Studio 54 and those kind of things and all the apparent um, madness that went on there. And that was just also reflecting what we were doing at the time, which was we were going out every night, really. Um, the scene was so good, whether it be in Sheffield or, as I say, we'd, we'd go out in Leeds quite a bit as well. So, mm. Mm. We're talking about kind of, um, you know, local heroes earlier, bands wanting to be local heroes, but a guy I think doesn't get enough of the credit and probably one of the few links you've got with bands like Arctic Monkeys and those sort of bands from musical sense is Al Smythe, who obviously produced oh, a Separated by Motorways, one of your early demos. We're trying to get him on the show at some point when he's got, yeah. when he's got time to spare. But yeah, I, I think he doesn't get spoken about enough in terms of what he did for that, that scene. So what was it like working with him on, on some of your early demos? Work, working with Al was absolutely fantastic. I mean, uh, as you say, I think every band in Sheffield would hold Al, Al Smyde up as, um, yeah, a, a legendary figure in that scene. I mean, um, for us, he um, he got what we were trying to do, first of all, as opposed to some other pro uh, producers who sometimes tell you how it's supposed to be done. Um, mm. You know, and this is particularly, we went in with him very early on and we were still, there were bits that might be a bit out of tune, for example, or I might be playing the wrong note or something, but I was like, no, 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 I want it to sound like that. And he never said, well, you need to change it to that. It was like, just go with it. It's got, he could immediately tell when we were in the room playing, the five of us together, he was like, right, you just need to capture that, that essence of you guys being in a room 
So and he's he's absolutely absolutely legendary. Actually, he's the first reason I found out about Arctic Monkers as well because he recorded a lot of their early demos. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember one weekend we'd been recording with him, and I said to him, I said, oh, who have you got in tomorrow? And he said, oh, the Arctic Monkeys. And I can remember us all laughing, going, that is the worst name I've ever heard. <laughs> um, <laughs> then little did we know, um, they went on to become, you know, the city's biggest export ever, I guess, you know. Yeah. He said this name, and we were like, nah, they're not going to get anywhere with a name like that. That is awful. <laughs> but that... that- that's the reason I, I came to Sheffield in 2004, September. It took me till March. It took me six months to go and see him because everyone would keep mentioning this name. And I go, I'm not going to go and see a band called Arctic Monkeys. I mean, Long Blondes, yeah, yeah that makes sense. That's got glamour yeah. about it. I'll go and see that. Yeah, God, I know. I mean, they were, I mean, the thing is with them, to be honest, that's it. Like, I was going, oh, that, and I remember we then we first saw a photo of them. And I think it was the one they were just like sat in a bus stop with their Adidas Kegels on. And mm. we were just going, no chance. Like, and there was a certain point I seem to remember we'd be an enemy. We were starting to get an enemy quite a bit, and we'd be in it, and then they'd be in it, and vice versa. And it just didn't seem like a threat. But then, as soon as I heard uh, Baker look going on the dance floor, I was just like, "Whoa, okay." It's. I mean, I, I remember actually ringing Screecher and going, "It's got the best intro intro to a record ever." Um, mm. Which mm. it's still. It's still. Again, it gets you as soon as you hear that. You're like, "God, that's good." And I guess another thing I wanted to talk to you about, I know this has been thrown at you in other interviews, but maybe not in the way that I'm going to throw this at you, is you had a bit of a mission statement when you came out. You know, our shared influences included the Mail Brothers, the Marx Brothers yeah. and the Bewley Brothers. We do not listen yeah. to the Beatles, the Stones, Hendrix, the Doors. I actually don't want to talk to you about that we do not listen to the the, the Beatles, Stones, Hendrix kind of contrariness. I don't think people ask you enough about actually these other influences, so the Mail Brothers being Sparks, you know, the right. Marx Brothers being Comedy. Beauty Brothers yeah. being Bowie. So I'd almost rather understand the first bit than the second bit, if you know what I mean. So what was it about Sparks, for example, and the Marx Brothers that, that was kind of inspiring you at that time? Well, uh, I mean, Sparks, um, just after, I think, are one of the most... Sparks, one of the great bands where if you get them, you absolutely love them. If you don't get them, I think it's difficult for people to really understand what mm. it is because just they're absolutely ludicrous. Um, in fact, um yeah, um, we were listening to them the other night and we're just like, God, this is so good. But other people were like, I don't understand it. And that's a certain element of where I think Blonde Blondes came from. You either got us first time or you dismissed us immediately. Um, and then there was a lot to explore once you got into into that bubble. That was my thing with that. Um, and again, obviously, with, um, with the Marks and stuff, more it was more just... We were quite interested in referencing things outside just music because mm. that again that so that was the thing to me when i said like oh you know we don't listen to the beatles the stones all the rest of it which was actually true um in fact the only band out of that lot that i quite like now is hendrix um but the doors particularly they can get in the bin um but um <laughs> it was more it was more just i was so sick of reading about this you know the next big band and it would always be like, oh, it was a more boring thing. They were just like, oh, we listen to, we like the Beatles. It's like an oasis. It's like, oh, come on, mate. There must be something more. Mm. Um, so it was more. It was more just to us a way of um, saying, look, there's there's more to our world than just listening to the White Album on repeat. You know what I mean? <laughs> and also, I guess that you you know you were also kind of fans of bands like the Four, the Ronettes, the Ronettes. I was going to talk to you about in that. You know, your debut Absolutely. single, New Idols, completely shamelessly celebrates rather than rips off well, Be My Baby by, by the Ronettes, right? Well, that's right. There you go. That is, um, 
that was important to me um, because, again, that was part of the mission statement, really. So to me, it's like, right, your debut single should start off with the best intro to a record ever, which that is for me. Um, mm. my baby, so it's like, right, let's steal that. Then there's also in that song, um, there's a sort of solo, as much as I could play a solo. But the whole point of that was it was a two-note solo, which was the solo from um, Boredom by the Buscocks, mm. which, which then another big influence on us, Orange Juice, ripped off or borrowed when they did rip it up. So to me, there was a link, Buscocks, mm. Orange Juice, Long Blondes. That was the kind of thing that I hoped fans would pick up on, really, which obviously you did. And in terms of those early days, you know, there was that run of, of early singles. You know, you you got out of Sheffield, you played in London quite a bit, and I think you started to build a following there. But, you know, you weren't quite an overnight success in terms of getting signed. I mean, was there a point, was it that you were waiting for the right label and the right label obviously ended up being Rough Trade, right? And we can talk about why that was an important label in a second. Or or was it more a case that, I don't know, you weren't getting the opportunities? Like, where where because obviously you were clearly getting press and you were getting noticed, but you yeah. hadn't quite reached that point where you'd signed a, a deal yet. Yeah, it was very much about getting the right label. And um, I mean, um, as a band, we, uh, I mean, to say that the four, the five of us are quite strong individuals who argued with each other quite a lot would be an understatement, to be honest with you. And then for us also agree on something which is potentially quite life-changing, like signing to a certain label or something, um, it had to be. Yeah, exactly. So basically, it had to be right. It had to be the right label. I mean, by the time we signed to Rough Trade, we'd had an offer from pretty much every label in the country. Um, and we were just like, nah, I, I don't know about that. I can remember certain meetings with labels. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, it was the glory days of, it was the last glory days of the industry where every label was coming up to Sheffield to kind of wow us. You know, so they'd be splashing cash, taking us out for a meal, buying us drinks, which I can't imagine happens now because mm. there's not a amount of money in it. But we'd we'd be sat there. I could, we'd always sit in the um, um, can't remember the name of the pub now, so that's a pointless anecdote. Um, <laughs> where, um, where, where was it? Let's see if I can remember. Let's, let's this, if I can yeah, remember. yeah. Let's. Start. Oh God, it's going to annoy. Right, so. Where the showroom cinema is, it's kind of around the corner from there. We just say yeah, it was yeah. one of well, it was a it was a famous Sheffield home. That was kind of where we used to hang out a bit, and all every label was coming up to see us, and we'd basically judge they and our guy on what he looked like as soon as he walked through the door. Hmm. And most of the time, like, nah, no way we signed to these. I can remember this one guy particularly turned up, and he was wearing um, kind of a mod, sort of a mod suit, but it was like a really new, shiny kind of one. But he obviously thought, oh, maybe if I wear this cool suit, it'll kind of, they'll think I'm on their level kind Fox of thing. Like, exactly, that's right. It was exactly, and we were just like, who the fuck is this clown? Um, but <laughs> I can still remember, he was like, he bought us all these whiskeys and stuff, and he um, he was making the big speech, almost like the classic, you know, what our label can do for you and stuff. And he was like so excited with his own hyperbole, kind of like, gesticulated and smashed this glass of whiskey off the table and we're just like god this who is this guy he just seemed really cocked up and like oh we can do this we're gonna get you to number one and blah it's like we were just like yeah all right mate just have a rest like um but no so um 
by the time we we signed to Rough Trade, we had an offer on the table from um, pretty much every label. In fact, the only one I know we didn't have an offer from was Domino, um, <laughs> who were interested in us. But then we played an absolutely the worst gig we ever did um, at the garage on Highbury Corner, um, and um, they'd come to see us. And I mean, there's been out of tune and out of time, and then there's been out of tune and out of time. <laughs> and this mm. was like, it was like we'd just met for the first time. We didn't know what the fuck we were doing. Um, I don't know if you've seen, um, what's that Oasis documentary called? Supersonic. And it oh, shows yeah, a clip where they're the... playing in LA. That's the one, they're yeah, all, yeah. They're all on different drugs, so they're all playing at different speeds. Right. <laughs> it, exactly. It was basically that. And I mean, it was it was... Christ Almighty, I, I can't remember it because I don't know if I was even there, to be honest with you. Um, and then I rang them the next day, um, and, Jeff, and Jeff from, uh, is it Jeff? No, uh, whatever his name is. So from uh, Domino, just like, oh, you know, I'm I'm a fan. And we just kind of left it that. I was just like, because hmm. oh. they they would forerunners, that would have been a really good, because obviously at that point, they'd just got Arctic Monkeys. Um, they had Franz Ferdinand. So that seemed like that would have been good. Um, mm. But, you know, um, no, then Rough Trade got in touch and it was like, yeah, right, Rough Trade, perfect. Mm. And talking about kind of gigs that maybe didn't go as well, am I right Am I right in remembering you supported Arctic Monkeys at the um, at the lead mill and it, and it didn't end well? And almost, again, was a bit of a line in the sand between your two bands, right? They, they crossed over to that lad crowd, should we say, and uh, yeah. from, I remember there was some pretty unsavoury chants and you just kind of, you fucked off the gig, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was, yeah, that was really good. Well, it wasn't good. It was awful to be there. Um, yeah, so what had happened is, I think they just got to number one um, for the first time. And they were fans of ours and they actually basically rang us up and said, would you be up for supporting us tonight? And I thought, yeah, like in my naive way, I said to the rest of them, Let's just go and blow them off stage, because I still I'd still never seen them live. I'd heard Betty were going to dance for, and that was it. I thought, you know, how, what kind of? I thought, how good can this band of four lads from High Green really be? <laughs> like, um, and I was like, yeah, let's go along. We'll do it. Um, and I've never seen anything. I mean, the amount of testosterone in that room. Um, like, I don't remember seeing any girls. It was all lads, and I mean proper. You know. Bucket Heart, Fred Perry lads. <laughs> and I was, oh God. Um, and I can remember, yeah, I can remember it. We sort of shuffled on and straight away, they're just like, I mean, first of all, you've got three three girls who are dressed up, and then you've got two guys who are both wearing eyeliner. Um, <laughs> and so just, they were just, um, well, the, the, you know, there's no getting around it. The chant was puffs, 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 puffs. And I was just thinking, oh my God. And we started, we, we did about two songs. They were just throwing stuff at us, like almost like Neanderthals. And we were just like, mm-hmm. um, and so I looked at the rest of them. And after the third song, we just stopped and just walked back off. It's like, what's, there was no point in us playing that gig at all. Um, apart from, I'm really glad we did it because so we walked off. And I remember Alex was watching us from the side of the stage. I said to him, I said, to be fair, mate, well done, because if you can cross over to that that sort of person, mm. it's a bit like the Oasis effect. You've got fans who will buy your records for the rest of your life. Um, mm. And, um, I mean, 
to be honest with you, I, I, we, I remember watching them, and that was the first time I've seen Arctic Monkeys live. And you know what? They were absolutely, absolutely brilliant. They basically did that, that whole first album, and that, we were just like, God, they are. I mean, live, they were just fantastic. Um, and even by that early point, Alex hardly even had to sing a word. Do you know what I mean? Everyone knew the words of this unreleased record. It was like, mm. whoa. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it definitely, that was a real time for me when it, it felt like it did draw a line in the sand um, because it seemed like the lads were back on the rise again. So, uh, yeah, so as I say, early on, even within Sheffield, there was a very arty indie scene. And I even felt that in those early stuff, for example, early, again, they became something different. But when you look at the early interviews with, like, the Libertines, for example, they were they were a lot more arty than they're given credit for because I think it very quickly became, you know, the, the Pete Doherty soap opera. Well, they were, they were talking about Tony Hancock and all sorts of things in their interviews, and I was just like, that's kind of cool. Um, but, yeah, that, that Archie Munkers gig, it was like, oh, God, the lads are back again. And it's like there's no, there was no, um, what's the word? There was no levels of um, subtlety with it. No. Um, no which I actually bit- think. In, Al- in Alex's writing, to give Alex credit, like he's he's writing. I mean, he had a number one, and it mentions, you know, it mentions Duran Duran, which is quite well. You know, it mentions Rio, and then it also mentions Montagues and Capulet. So there's a reference to Shakespeare. It's like mm. that's that's pretty cool. But that kind of to me, that kind of fell on deaf ears with that initial audience, really. Mm. Oh no, I, I think I think there was a lot of baby types in the crowd that night. A lot of. Uh... Uh, tough men who, who were um, struggling with their own sexuality and decided oh God, yeah. to uh, to kind of to kind of throw some of that at you. I always Definitely. think that when you see gangs of lads shouting puffs, 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 but that's that's probably for another podcast, to be honest. Um, <laughs> so, be, so I think let's move on to talking about someone to drive you home. Um, you know, you, you did eventually sign with Rough Trade. Um, you know, what was it like working with Steve Mackey on that? You know, I know you're all, all big fans of the pulp, and you know, how, how do you know what are your memories of putting that album together because you know not the same pressure as maybe an arctic monkeys but what had happened was you had released those singles you were well thought of in the music press you know and you kind of had to deliver so what, what was it like That's right. being in the studio and working on that it was uh you know it was it was really really good and i think it could have um overwhelmed other bands in in a way we were quite headstrong it was like so we'd signed to rough trade um and then it was uh, Jeff Travis obviously who runs Rough Trade and he ran me up one day and said look um, we're going to get you to come down to London um, to record your first album um, and he said because we'd made a joke in the press saying oh we want Jarvis to produce it mm. uh, which was just a silly joke really um, and anyway so Jeff from Rough Trade ran me up one day and said look well Jarvis doesn't produce um, but you should do it with Steve Mackey and we were all, obviously, we were all huge Pulp fans. And we were like, what? Okay. Um, so we had still a little joke we'd made in the press had almost been taken seriously. Um, so I was like, okay. Um, when I look back at that, that could have been completely overwhelming for what was still quite a, a new a new band at the time, really. Um, and the only reason that came about was as a joke in in an interview somewhere, I'd said, oh, I want Jarvis to produce our debut record. Um, and then pretty much the next day, 
um, Jeff Travis from Rough Trade ran me up and said, well, Jarvis doesn't produce, but um, how about doing it with Steve Mackey? And obviously we were like, okay, that's crazy. Like, as you say, as big, obviously Pope were a huge influence on us. It was like, wow, okay. Um, and the only reason that, that I think that worked was because Steve immediately started coming up to Sheffield, sat in with us while we rehearsed a few times. Um, you know, then we'd go to the pub with him and stuff. So we got to know him as a friend before we went in and, and did the record with him. So by the time we went down to London to record the actual album, we'd already kind of got our fanboy and fangirl stuff out of the way, you know. So we'd been to the pub with him and we'd got all the mm. gorillas, um Britpop stories and stuff out of him, none of which I can repeat here, unfortunately. Mm. Um, but yeah, so by the time we'd gone to record, it was like, right, Steve's just our mate now, you know, right, focus, we need to focus on this record. And I was, as we all were, we were very much aware, a bit like you just said, that I think a certain sector of the indie scene, shall we say, was definitely waiting on this record. Um, you know, the, the, all these singles from the album had already got, or everything that had been released or heard from the record had already been reviewed really well. Those songs were going down well at indie discos, um, you know, that kind of thing. So I was aware that this was our big chance. We need to make, we need to define those records with a, a really good debut record. Um, and um, on reflection, I'm very, very, I'm really, really happy with that. If if if, there's, if that's what I'm remembered for, you know, basically I, I once said to my mum, bury me with a copy of my first record because that's, you know, I'm happy with that. That's, you know, um, mm, mm. if that remembers the Long Blondes for, then I'm, I'm, I'm really, really happy with that. And I, I can just remember when I first heard that, that, you know, that album mm. in the sense that I, I, know I knew the demos and I knew the singles and, there was like a there was a joke that we used to we used to talk about enemy at the time of well we, we prefer the demos we actually talked about a band should release an album called I prefer the demos right but yeah. like even <laughs> in the first track like lust in the movies you could hear the level of production had just gone up That's significantly right, yeah. it was it was it was tighter it sounded better yeah. it, it was a kind of a level up and I think for me that is the best opening track of any album from from that era because it absolutely sets your stall out musically and also kind of lyrically you know this you you know you're not listening to Little Man Tay when you've got a chorus that's, you know, Edie Sedgwick and a Karenia Arlene Dahl, you know? Well, that, that's good. That's that's actually my favourite Long Blonde song as well, actually. Um, yeah, that's it. Again, that, you're absolutely right. I mean, it was about... I wanted to make an album in the way that I listened to them, so that really set out the stall. In the same way that, as an example, when you listen to an album like, I don't know, Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust, as soon as you hear you know, uh, five years, you know that this is going to be something you've got to get into that album's headspace, really. Mm. That was mm. it to me. It's like, right, once you start this album, you're in Long Blonde's world. So if you if you don't want to get involved with it, turn it off now and go and listen to Little Man Tate instead, because it interview. I guess another track I wanted to talk to you about, you know, we've talked about some of the other singles, Giddy Stratospheres, which we're going to return to later, actually. I know yeah. you've been involved with the film that that's inspired, but a track I don't think gets yeah. talked about enough is You Could Have Both. Oh, I think that's okay. the most underrated track you, you you did. You know, I one of my uh, claims to fame amongst no one probably other than my podcast partner, yeah. 
is I, I, I can do the entire spoken word bit from You Could Have Both really? from memory. Because uh, I, I absolutely love that gene and stuff about um, CC Baxter in Wilder's apartment. Yeah. Um, particular arrangement. Uh, just came out of the blue. Who was it who said, I know you, you love one, so why can't you love two? I was in full time yeah. education and I got scared of the future. I've only got a job so I don't disappoint my mother. Uh, that's what happens when you listen to St. Scott Walker on headphones on the bus. What about us? It's brilliant. Like, what was that yes. influenced by? I'll, I'll spare you any more of it than that, but I had to at least prove no, no, what no, I was, that, was, that was spot on. Um, that was, um, what was that influenced by? Um, I mean, there's a, again, there's a, bit of, there's a bit of pulp in there. I like the way that with certain tracks that pulp have, for example, I Spy, um, or Feeling Called Love, where there's almost spoken word passages in it. Um, and it just, it just kind of naturally happened. I think we were just rehearsing it what, the first time. And as would often happen, I would showcase the lyrics. And then she, would, she just said, well, why don't you do that bit? I'll do that bit. And so it just seemed like a nice, uh, a nice, um, a nice contrast to some of the other tracks. Um, but one of the most, uh, that, I, I really like that track as well. I'm glad you pointed that one out. Something really heartwarming for me actually was, um, so obviously it mentions listening to Scott Walker or saying Scott Walker, as I call him, on the bus, um, on headphones on the bus. Uh, you know the lyrics better than me, but um, um, yeah. when I... Uh, <laughs> I can recite them to you now, yeah. <laughs> but what happened was um, when Scott Walker died, um, I actually had a few people who said to me, I only heard about Scott Walker through it being mentioned on that song. And then they got into Scott Walker off the back of that, which to me was really important. That's the kind of thing that I like, because when you had bands again, to me it was really important with bands like the Smiths, where they would say, mention something that you didn't know anything about, but then you would kind of get into it through that. Yeah, totally, totally, yeah. And that's what's really clever. You know, they're, they're, you know your, your records, are, there's whole loads of Easter eggs in there, of film stars, you know, old kind of icons of the 60s. If you know... I'm not going to try and claim I picked them all out. You know, I'm the sort of person yeah. when I watch a film, I then Google the Easter eggs and claim that I saw them all, right? But, you know, I could yeah, definitely yeah. Pick, out, pick out a few. And probably some you'll never even tell people about. It probably is just a private joke between you and the band, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean I'm sure you'll, you'll know through having interviewed bands for a long time that, yeah, I mean, obviously there's plenty of, uh, plenty of private jokes in there, many of which have been lost in the mist of time, really. But... Also, you know, private jokes are often private for a reason because they're not funny to anybody else. So I wouldn't, mm. uh, I certainly wouldn't bang on about them now. But yeah, there's lots of, I mean, when I look back on that record, there's a hell of a lot of references to obscure stuff. And if people pick up on that, that's really good. But equally, do you know what? If they don't, you know, it was, I wasn't writing an essay for people to be like, you need to read this, you need to read this. It was like, Right, if you get that reference, that's great. But if you don't, you should probably read more, you know. <laughs> mm. I think what else, you know, we've been touching on the lyrics there, and I want to talk a little bit more about that, because I think it was probably surprising for people to learn that you wrote the lyrics for those songs. People would have assumed it was Kate. It was written from that kind of female perspective. And I bet a lot of blokes listened to that and thought, well, I wish I could understand women as well as yeah. Dorian if they're writing these lyrics because it's quite authentic some, some of the themes you're talking about there I think you know in the way that women feel about relationships or feel sidelined or you know uh, that you can't drink certain drinks in the pub you know clearly you that probably says a lot about maybe socially how you were 
at the time and probably still are in the the things you observe from that female sort of gaze so where do you think that really sort of came from um well i mean um i've always had a close set of friends who are girls that's just a natural thing to me um you know even now if i go out i tend to go out to the pub well obviously not at the moment unfortunately but you know to me it's just natural to hang out with girls as well as lads um but also when people talk about that kind of thing of looking at it from a female perspective it was more um i don't really differentiate between um those things it, it's just to me it's looking at things from the point of view of an outsider which um you know as um as a bunch of indie kids the long blondes were outsiders and that goes back to obviously when we talked about the Arctic monkeys gig he felt very much on the outside of that so my mm. lyrics come from the place of um you know somebody who um yeah feels like slightly on the outside of things and I've always, I've just naturally, I, I think I prefer to watch things than get involved with them, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, so I will always, that's just how my brain works, really. It's like I tend to be able to observe things from an outsider's point of view um, mm. and then use that for for lyrical content, definitely. And I guess there's probably no better example of that than as we were saying there, you could have both where you say, you know, uh, there'll always be a phone to ring a- at three in the morning and you'll always have someone who'll drive you home you know but i don't have that you know if, if right, that, that exactly. for me it's a classic outsider lyric right you know? that well that's exactly that's 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 exactly that's exactly what it was and especially when you see people it's that classic thing if you then you see people who seem to have everything and you know we never felt like that and i i still don't feel like that and i don't think any of my real friends feel like that you know you're always if you if you're an outsider then i think you are an outsider for your life really and there's mm. some some things about mm. that that are quite nice there's other bits where you do see people who seem to have more opportunities than you and things like that and you think well why is it never me which is almost well, the ultimate there's a bit that that's a little bit ultimate pity me pity me i don't feel mm. like that i've been very i've been very fortunate and managed to produce a body of work that i'm really happy with so I'm not, but, but, but I did that. We all did that against the odds, I think. Mm. And as you say in that lyric, and I will stop quoting this lyric back at you, your friends come round and ask you what about us. It's not just you that feels this way. It's like you found mm. your tribe, you know? That's right, yeah. Well, well, exactly, that's it. I, and I just wanted the, the Long Blondes to be um, a band like, you know, like the Smiths did, like, like Pulp did, like Suede did, bands that were... Uh, a definitive band for outsiders and i could definitely see within the indie scene by the time arctic monkeys and bands of that ilk were coming along um the true outsiders you know my band was for the true outsiders not just the lads who wanted to throw pints of plastic beer over people on a mm. side and mm. the lead mill kind of thing so on a side note are you a fan of suede only because again i did a bit of uh, twitter stalking today and i noticed you you made a reference to brett anderson and that classic quote about he was a bisexual who'd never had a homosexual experience <laughs> I, I absolutely i love suede i love suede i really i really do and that was um actually that was an inspiration for where we went musically in terms of the next album and things like that. Like I love, particularly with, with Suede, the first three albums, I think are absolutely fantastic. You've kind of got the first one, which is um, 
kind of all the all the indie hits really you've got the second one which is goes a lot deeper and is a bit more um a bit more strange i suppose and then they come back with the third album which is just just 100 bangers it's just a pure bright pop album which is really good for mm. taking pills too yeah i mean that probably segues nice into talking about your second album couples and i'm gonna do yeah. the air quotes because that's important though listen yeah, good, I can't good. see that. So I'm telling them I'm doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, and and I guess it was interesting. We were talking before about you know this was a band built around two couples, but by this point wasn't. Yeah. And and those relationships had kind of ended. But did it have an influence on the recording process, or was it actually <clears throat> quite good in that it informed what you were writing about? Do you know what I think? We probably. I mean, we used to argue constantly anyway. Um, but we probably got on better. Um, during the recording of the second record because we didn't have the baggage of being couples anymore. Um, mm. And so I think it was a bit like, um, right, we're just doing it. There was no partisan kind of thing. So as an example, so I guess during the first bit of the band, when Kate was the one who wasn't in a couple, she'd kind of have the decided vote on stuff, whereas now it was like, right, all that baggage is gone. So it was really, really... Mm. I mean, you know, um, not to sound heartless about any of that kind of thing, because obviously stuff like that can be distressing, but no, do you know what? It didn't. People always ask me that. They're like, it must have been a nightmare. It it really wasn't. I mean, um, we were just, because we were just like, right, we know that where we're heading, all these songs are really good. Let's just do it. Um, and that was, in fact, that was another Easter egg, actually. So obviously it was called Couples with the... Um, quotation marks because it's like right well we're not couples anymore but also the quotation marks were a reference to um bowie's album heroes because that's got quotation marks on it uh, mm, mm. i think you mentioned that because that's something that again people don't seem to pick up on that one uh, and in terms of the sound it, it definitely moved the sound on you know you worked with Aaron olken who was like who yeah. was the king of of kind of the naughty scene at the time he'd kind of cut his teeth yeah. producing some of your b-sides but was known for kind of being dj at trash and and you know yeah. a whole scene was kind of built around Aaron olken and how deliberate was that that you wanted to move away from some of that charity shop indie i guess you could call it into more mm -hmm. of the electro-y kind of side of things uh, I, I think well I mean, it sounds like a cliche to say it was just a natural thing, but it, it really was. I mean, I think that um, a a band can only really reflect where where they are at, at the moment. And like, and by that point, that was another um, that was another part of the scene, the scene that we knew seemed to be dissipating a bit and becoming a bit more laddish. And by that time, particularly, like, I was down in London most of the time. I think I might have moved down there by then. And that's how I got to know Errol. And it was like another world. So it was like it had all that initial indie glamour, but it was mixing up with um, slightly more electronic things and things like that. It was, it just felt like the world, it was real. It was a really good vibe, the club in there. Um, you know, so so in, in my in my mind, it was a totally natural continuation because it still had all the elements of that indie glamour that we did in the first record. But I was definitely listening to a lot more, particularly seventies disco by then, and I was interested in the way those records were put together. Um, so I mean, it just seemed like a really natural thing. And Errol's a really good person for. Um, pushing you to your limit, like you can, um, you can suggest the most what you think is the most ridiculous thing, and he'll, he'll almost 
suggest something that's more ridiculous and we'll just go yeah let's just let's just go for that let's just go all out and that's what i felt like i could see i could see that the the initial indie scene that we'd come up in was starting to collapse around then um and i certainly wasn't interested in again going back to the sheffield thing and this is no slight on those lads in particular but i didn't want to be um, you know, lumped in with Harrisons, or even if you go further afield, they didn't want to be lumped in with Pigeon Detectives and these kind of bands. They were of no, they had nothing to do with me. Um, and so, as mm. I say, by that point, mm. um, I was going out. Uh, I mean, again, London was extremely hedonistic at that point. People just seemed to be out all the time. I don't know how because no one seemed to have really good jobs with any money or anything, but. Um, everyone just seemed to go out all the time and that was where I was at so the music I was writing came from that almost nocturnal world which mm. again to think mm. to the Swave and they did Dogman Star that was a lot more there was still a pop element in there and you could see the link from their first album but they were almost pushing it further out to the mar- margins um, and that's where I felt I was going with my life at the time to be honest like it was a non-stop um, it was as I keep I keep saying the word very hedonistic, but that's that's really what it was. Like, and songs came mm. out of you know staying up for three days and looking back over scraps of paper that I'd written <laughs> um, and thinking, oh yeah, that actually yeah that would work if I put that with that, and then that's not a bad idea for a song. And then so it, it just came out of the the times that I was living through really. Uh, to me, it felt mm. like a very natural, natural move on. And I think again, like I said to you before about Giddy Stratospheres having that sound that to me screams hedonism. Something like Century, the guitar yeah, sound you've got on that is is very it's a yeah. very pilled up guitar sound. Just to be blunt with you, like it, you can it, it, you can hear the serotonin it, coursing through that. You know, it is that's that's exactly what it is. But that's that's the thing. It's like that's what we were all doing at the time, and you know. Mm. I, I can't really make any apologies about that because that's the state that was the state of our minds at the time. And actually, yeah, when you particularly century, um <laughs> one of my favourite bits on that actually is Emma's guitar on that. It's very metallic and very almost cold in a way that's like the the guitar sounds like a come down mm. in my mind. Mm. Um, but yeah, that again, that's just something that grew from you know, you can only make a record of where you're to me the re- record is literally a record of where your head is at at that time we never really agreed on influences or i mean apart from the obvious ones like pulp and smiths which was still an influence during the second record but by that point we were all listening to uh, other things as well i mean certainly again it sounds like a bit of a cliche now but certainly bits of things like Harmonia and Can and things like that were coming into the mix. A lot of that was through um, going to trash. Like, because mm. the records are mm. play. I mean, it just made, it just made me realise that you could, there are no rules. Errol would play a Can record, but then he'd play a Britney Spears record after it or something like that. You know, it was like, it was mm. genuinely, mm. absolutely... It really was mind-blowing to me that you could put pure pop next to a, a, a five-minute drone. Mm. And it's like, right, mm. all, all, to me, it was like, right, all um, all bets are off, all cards are off the table. There are no rules. Let's push ourselves as much as we can. 
Uh, and actually, I remember with that song, with Round the Hairpin, um, it was going that way in rehearsals anyway. Um, like, Emma was doing these really good keyboard drones. Um, and then Screech's beat initially, I think, was a bit more disco-y. But then we came in one day and him and him and Rini were just playing the song. I was like, God, keep doing that, just keep doing that. And I think we probably just had one day of practice where he just didn't stop. He just kept that beat mm. going. Mm. And we just sort of almost like the song was already there, but I was like, actually, let's let's just structure it a bit more around that beat because that's really, really good. Make it really minimal and just sounding cool. Um, but again, to be honest, that's something that in hindsight, I mean, I'm glad that album now is looked on in a, in a good light because I know that I think people were a bit confounded by it at first. Um, but then it kind of it got my goat a bit and I got on with all those lads. But literally about six months later, the Horrors released their second album, which, which had a very kraut rock vibe to it. And they were hailed as the saviors of the indie scene. And I was like, well, hang on a minute. We can did that six months ago but you know again that's where to me that's where sexism comes into things and that's uh maybe a different different topic but yeah well, it's, i think it'd be an interesting topic to go into actually it wasn't where i was going to go next to my next question but this has come up in a few of our of our interviews and not so much that bands with girls couldn't get signed or women call them bands with women couldn't get signed but more yeah. a label would say we've already got our um two men, two women, or uh, uh, one man, one woman. So we, we don't need kind of more of that. So I guess as a band that were unusual in a way that you had the three women and then the two yeah. men, uh, yeah, what yeah. was your perspective on, on that kind of sexism side of things? And why was it, you think, that, you know, you did, like you say, that kind of uh, kraut rock style of stuff, and then the horrors yeah. do that, yeah. and they do that in a certain style, <clears throat> and then they're the saviors of rock. And it was a great album. I love that album, right? Oh, it but was, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right, the... the you were also doing that at the same time, but with a different, yeah. I don't know, in a different package, let's say. That's right, that's right. Well, it is, I mean, I mean, yeah, like I was saying this to someone the other day, it's kind of a weird position to be in where I was, I was almost the, and I don't want this to come across in the wrong way, but because obviously I was in the band, I was, um, I was becoming a victim of sexism, you know, once removed, obviously, sort of thing, but um, yeah, I mean, there's loads, loads and loads. I mean, I could go on all night about the amount of things that didn't happen for us because there was girls in the band. I mean, classic example, like for weeks and weeks and weeks, we supposed to be going on Journals Holland one night, and then every week their producer would ring up and say, oh, no, we've got a girl band this week. It's like, what does that, hmm. what does that mean? You know what I mean? It's like, well, you've also got a lot of, bands with guys and I, I don't understand how that works I mean there was a million times where we get put together on bills with bands just because they had girls in mm. you know so it was almost like girl girl becomes a genre within itself for some unknown reason mm. um that happened yeah I got it happened all the time and I mean the thing is it's uh for as much as people don't want to admit it the music industry is a sexist industry you know like it's, it's, you know, I mean, um, there's a reason why bands with girls in seem to get written out of history a lot, you know. Mm. I mean, yeah, to mm. me, as an, example, as an example to me, the best two punk bands are X-Ray Specs and the Slates. 
And they, them two bands are better than The Clash and The Sex Pistols by a million miles, in my opinion. But they never get that credit for it. Um, and that's happened That's happened all down the line. And, I mean, I like to think things are getting better, but I'm not sure if they entirely will, um, unfortunately. That's... There's always, the thing is, there's always, it's easy to market. So even the horror has been a great example. Now, all right, they were, they looked, they looked weird um, and are quite strange chaps. Um, hmm. But when it comes, but, you know, when it comes down to it, the bottom line <laughs> is it's to market five guys and it is to market two guys and three girls. That's, that's, that's the bottom line. And I, I'm, yeah, unfortunately, um, sexism was rife and i'm pretty sure still is rife in the industry mm. Mm. And, and i guess we as, as two as two white males we probably wouldn't even even know if it had improved you know and we can only kind of surmise can't we no you know you're exactly that's it you're right like i i wouldn't it makes me feel a bit uncomfortable talking about it as a as a white male do you know what i mean it's like mm. because like however bad it gets i'm never gonna i i recognize that i've always got the privilege of being a white male basically so you know um it does feel weird to talk about but obviously through being in a band with three other girls i've seen i've seen some of the impacts of that definitely another thing i was going to talk to you about i guess because we're talking about the second album here and um you know the horrors then getting the limelight for doing some similar things but obviously around this time as well you had your illness you know and i i think the band were the long blondes were on the cusp of that big hit probably with guilt I think guilt could have been, even if you'd had to release it twice or something like a lot of bands yeah. did there, that, that would have hit the top 20, top 10 even, right? And then I think you'd have, you'd have kind of yeah. smashed through that, that glass ceiling. And I know you've talked about, you know, what happened on, on a few interviews, and I don't, I don't want to necessarily pick at that over and over again, but how do you reflect on that from the point of view of, you know, you, you were, I think you were really on the cusp of, of, of breaking yeah. through in that way, you know? At the same time, the couples in the band have broken up, and do you think... There would have been the mileage in the band to go and do that third album, that fourth album. Like, how how do you think it would have panned out in that kind of sliding doors sort of moment? Yeah, I mean that's that is a that is a difficult one to answer. I mean, um, I mean in terms of there being mileage in us, that hundred hundred percent was. I mean, I mean I'd already written about seven tracks for a third album. Um, like I was so inspired around that time, and it was just it was like yeah. And that was that was kind of my thinking, really. Like guilt, particularly. I think we might have needed to remix it a little bit, um, but that was, and that actually remains one of one of my favourite songs that I've written. I think we just needed to get that. Could have been the one that had the pop, um, the pop chops to break through, definitely. Um, and I mean, obviously, it's all in the air now. But that that would have signaled where I would have gone next because I was trying to write after that. If we did get to a third album, it would have just been, you know, 11 hot hits, cut out all the fat and then just like literally go for go for the charts. Mm. So, I mean, mm. obviously that's something. Yeah. In terms of the mileage, the mileage was there. But then obviously getting ill. Um, but then even even that in a funny way, I can reflect on it now. I think that's because I was so into the, the myth, like the rock and roll myth and the myth of kind of... Um, cult bands like even though i wanted to write a third album i was always like no i don't know a band should do two albums and then disappear forever like for example joy division or something like and particularly in that way if someone from the band dies that that adds to the myth mm. and like 
um, which may, maybe seems like a bit of a flippant thing to to say. Now, obviously, I'm glad I'm alive. Of course, I am. But but then again, I I I died for three minutes. You know, when I was 27. So it's like I kind of almost completed my um, you know my um, rock and roll. You know, sort of legendary thing. It's like right, mm. I'm 27 mm. club. But I joined it for a couple of minutes. I looked in, and it was like you know, fucking. Um, What's his name out the doors jamming with someone else? I was like, oh, get me. I can't you f- bother with And you fucking hate the doors. So that's, that's probably why you turned around and ran away, right? I hate them. I hate them. Well, it's just, well, the doors, it's, I mean, I get why people like all the other classic 60s bands. I mean, as an example, obviously, I don't actually hate the Beatles or the Stones. It's just, I don't particularly listen to them. Um, but the doors, it's just sixth form poetry. It's like, oh, honestly. Mm. Mm. Did you ever kind of work out what? What caused you to get I mean, so I mean, ill? That, that is one of the mysteries, really. I mean, the bat, like um, doctors are never able to get to the bottom of it. I mean, I mean, yeah, I was, I was leading a very, very hedonistic lifestyle at that time. But then again, everyone, I mean, everyone I knew was like everyone I knew was doing a lot more than they should have done. Um, and so I wasn't unusual in my position. Um, and in actual fact, the only advice I didn't have was smoking, um, which is one of the things that, you know, is always put down to causing strokes. And it's like, well, in honestly, in my life, I'd probably smoked 10 cigarettes. It's like, um, but that was like the only advice I didn't have, I suppose. So, I mean, I don't know. It's one of the difficult ones because sometimes you think, well, if I went back, would I change anything? I don't know. That's a difficult one because I've got no definitive answer. I mean, it, that's, that's, yeah, that's something that, if I'm um, if I'm feeling a bit if I'm not feeling that good, I can sort of dwell on that and think, well, I wish I'd have known how to have dealt with that. But no, so I, I don't know. But then again, also, you know, life life happens, and um, I mean, I wouldn't have changed. I mean, I was really lucky that I just had a, the only reason I'm alive is I've got had so many good mates who got me through it. Um, mm. And also, you know, life life just happens, and it's like, well. The only I was pushing myself and pushing myself, and I mean I was also because I was so inspired by the band as well at the time. Um, I was a total workaholic, you know. So I mean, sleeping was a luxury. It was like I'd stay mm. up on mm. write songs. As as I said, like um, even though we'd literally just finished that second record, I'd already written and just demoed at home like seven more songs. For the for a third record, like I was just, I didn't care about sleeping and all that sort of thing. It's like almost that cliche of you know sleep when you're dead kind of thing. It's like right, mm. I'm staying up. To, you know, I've got my guitar plugged in, I've got my synth plugged in, I've got you know I've got my four track on the go, going to record some demos. And I don't know. Um, I suppose looking after myself was quite low on my list. Really, that's the I think that's the thing. Like. I'd go, you know, I'd go three days without sleeping. I could easily go three days without eating. Mm. It didn't, but that, it sounds stupid, but stuff like that just didn't matter to me. It was like I was so um, the band and music was so important to me and remains to this day. Like, obviously, I now look after myself much better, but they were, they were, you know, the, the Long Blondes was the most important thing in the world to me. So, mm. dived in first. 
responsibility for how it might end up, I guess. And obviously, you you know, the amazing thing is you have rehabilitated, you know, you, you regain the ability to walk, the ability to speak, obviously, we're talking now, and yeah. probably most important, you're making music again as Gold yeah. Top Baby, which I've been having a listen to, you know, there's bits of the fall in there, bits of suicide, the more experimental side, I think, of, yeah. of what way you were taking Long Blondes towards the end, so... Yeah. You know what was you know what was it that inspired you to start releasing music again, and kind of what what's the plan with Gold Top Baby? Do you have ambitions for it? Like how how are you feeling about it? Uh, I've got ambitions for it. I mean, um, yeah, I've got an album recorded which will hopefully be coming out this year. Um, beyond that, um, I'm not really sure. I guess we're in a strange time at the moment where it's difficult to set out any big ambitions um, because obviously who knows what's going on with the world in general and the music scene, I suppose. Um, I mean, the album will come out and it, I know it's a really, really strong album. It's got, it's got all those elements, like you say, like, um, I think one of the things actually got me back, I mean, I always write music and I always have, um, but yeah, weirdly, I just got back into for example, the first Suicide record, which obviously, of course, is one of the most important records of all time. But having not been able to play guitar for a long time, it made me realise I didn't really need to. It was like, right, let's get back to that real punk thing. I've got a drum machine. I've got a synth. You can make... One of the things I love about that first Suicide record is, even though essentially it's a drum machine and a synth playing two notes, it's still a really poppy album. Mm. Mm. Um, and that was so that was me I guess setting a um, sort of setting a task for myself to because I naturally write what I think are pop songs but I was like right well let's do it with you know the smallest possible I'm not going to have loads of extra stuff it's like right that's it that's the drum machine I'm using that's the synth I'm using those are the two notes I'm going to play let's make it let's try and make a pop record out of those within those parameters mm, mm. now I, th I think the suicide influence is one i can definitely hear and they're one of those, those bands again that you know they're not as well known you know they, they, if you know them you know them but you know they're, they're, they're probably not millionaires put it like that you know well I'm, I'm, i i um it's really weird over christmas i was talking to Zali, um like, i think this is really romantic my my girlfriend's parents met they both went to a suicide gig when they were kids, which mm. is like, what? Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, that's that's pretty crazy. And she said, her mum said, yeah, they're just these two blokes just kind of turned up and they just looked really inconspicuous and they literally just, they didn't even go on the stage. They just put their, you know, drum machine and synth and uh, um, an amp on the, on the floor mm. and literally suddenly started. So suddenly everyone was like, oh, they've started. They just stood there. It's like, <laughs> God, that, I would love to... That's one gig I would love to have been at, like an early suicide gig, just for mm. the sheer, um, um, the oh, way that almost. There you go, exactly. Doing it that way, yeah. Like that's 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 amazing. That's absolutely amazing to see something like that would have been incredible. And and we're running a little bit low on time, so kind of the final thing I wanted to talk to you about was you've been involved in another project that we've talked a little bit about on this podcast on a few episodes. <laughs> I think listeners probably know that we're looking forward to this, but the release, obviously, of Giddy Stratosphere's The Movie. 
right? Yeah. Like, yeah Giddy Stratosphere is the single in the demo, but, you know, one of your songs has gone on to inspire, you know, uh, an upcoming independent British film. So, I mean, how yeah. does that feel that one of those tracks that you, you wrote 15, 16, 17 years ago is now inspiring a film? And I know you've been involved in it as well. So what can you tell us about oh, yeah. kind of your involvement? I mean, I mean that, that's incredible. Obviously, did you did you have Laura on the show? Yeah, we've, we've had her on a couple of shows now. Yeah, I'm still trying to get information out of her about, about the film because she's keeping her cards pretty close to her chest. So this is my attempt to go around the houses to find out more. Well, that's it. And I mean, she got in touch with me and said, this is what, what I want to do. Is it OK, you know, if I call it Goody Stratus? I was like, of course. Um, well, obviously, I know I knew Laura a bit um, when we were both in London and stuff, and it's like I knew she'd do it properly. Um, so I basically, the next thing I knew, I went down, I filmed a little, I just have a little cameo. So it's like, again, I don't want to give too much away, but basically it's it's a slightly tragic film. I, I get the feeling in terms of it's, do you know, it's going back to that word of, um, hedonism like i think it's mm. maybe showing the downside of that like um like as i say if she doesn't want to i don't really want to reveal what it's fully about but basically it's the, it's very much the downside of um that era when everyone was just living truly living for the moment and you know not thinking about the consequences of things that you put in your body might uh, mm. might have um but no i just did a little cameo in it um just a silly little thing where I've, you know, so I've done a gig and she's come running up to me to sort of say, oh, I'm a big fan, I'm a big fan. And maybe I can, you know, kind of the way that people did then, like, so she's sort of a bit coked up and like, mm. oh, you know, can I do the posters for you and meet the band and all this? Oh, yeah, 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 whatever. And then she kind of goes off to tell her friends, even though I've just sort of tried to get rid of her as quickly as possible. Then she's kind of going back to friends going, oh, you said we could be on the guest list for... Glastonbury or something like that, and it's like, um, yeah, I don't know. It's I'm really, really looking forward to to seeing the full thing. She's got a really good cast. Everyone on the cast was fantastic, and she's also got some other people from that time. Like I know Kate does a little bit in it as well. Um, she's got some other people from that time featured in it. But mm. I'd say obviously I don't give too much away because if she hasn't said anything yet, then I I'm not sure I should. Also, I don't. I don't really know that much at the moment because I was just there doing a bit of a cameo. No, that's, that's fair. And like I say, we're, we're really looking forward to seeing it. So I'm going to end this interview, you know, the, with the yeah. kind of classic Liam slash Noel Gallagher question that they get asked at the end of every interview they do and every interview that Johnny Marr and Morrissey have done. You know, and I think there's, <laughs> there's, there's um, you know, the, for indie fans, I think, you know, given the way the band finished, you know, there yeah. is unfinished business there, but obviously there's a complexity of, your lives have all moved on. Kate's an artist. I don't know what the other guys are doing. And also, I guess, the the minor problem of your all former couples, right? Which I know you said you kind of got over with recording <laughs> the second album. But, you know, sometimes time can be a healer and it can also do the opposite, right? So, I mean, can yeah. you see a point where you'd consider maybe not coming back for an album or a tour, but but doing a reunion gig or, or something like that? Uh, I mean, first of all, I just want to say on record that the ex-couples thing is not a problem whatsoever it really really isn't um i mean doing stuff we're all still in touch um i guess it's the million dollar question i mean it's something that we occasionally skirt over the issue of i mean i'm not sure how it would work um to sort 
I've got a lot of songs that would be perfect Long Blonde songs. Um, something might happen in the future, but that's not a promise. That's a possibility. It's a tease. It's a tease. It's a tease. That's it. Maybe I should just leave tease. you on a tease. Yeah, yeah that, that sounds good to me. Yes, you've left us with a bit of a tease there. Um, so it's probably a good place to finish. Thanks so much for your time tonight, Dorian. Yeah, look forward to whatever, whether it's Long Blondes, whether it's Gold Top Baby. Looking forward to hearing what you produce next. No worries. Cheers, Rick. It's great to be here. Thank you so much, man. So a couple of points uh, I want to pick up on on that and and just very small points, but just kind of personal points that kind of made me smile as I was walking down the street when I was listening to this, Rick. Um, actually, the sun's out today where I, where I am and uh, it was a lovely lunch hour kind of walking around Croydon, uh, taking in the sights and the sounds uh, with Dorian as my soundtrack. But um, one of the things he said, uh, was which really reminds me of the time, is when you were talking about the instruments and the fact that they didn't, they didn't even have instruments at the beginning. And uh, I think that was a kind of a likely story um at the time you know when they were the, when the band was created but they said he was like buying a keyboard from a charity shop and that's just what you did back then you know if you told someone today um one of the kids let's say they were our age like 18 19 that is a kid to me these days if you told them you were just about to pop to the charity shop to buy a keyboard to make some music and you were going to get a record deal do you think they believe you no, I don't think so, yeah. But at the same time, I, I still think this is where, and I said this to Dorian, if you've got a choice between the truth and the legend, you know, print the legend, is that actually the case, that they all went to a charity shop one day? Were they actually classically trained privately and privately uh-huh. educated in a music school? Who knows and who cares? Because the story that they all toddled down to Oxfam, you know, bought a keyboard and some, uh, uh, you know, and a couple of blazers and some tank tops is a better story. So I'd always ha- more happily go with that than, than maybe what the actual truth was. Yeah, there is always print the legend. But I do think, you know, I know back in the day, you know, I knew a few bands and they actually did do that. So uh, I do think it was, regardless of whether it's true or not in this instance, it was something that people used to do and actually, you know, wow, you know, just to get record deals out of it. Anyway, another thing that I was thinking about was when you were talking about Errol Alkin um, and in Sheffield, I used to go to, I used to go to Bugged Out when it went to Sheffield um, and mm-hmm. had some amazing nights there. But um, one thing one I hadn't really kind of um, thought about actually um, I didn't really know that they'd really they'd worked with him, and I definitely didn't know that Dorian had moved to London and used to go to Trash uh, every Monday night, which was at a club called The End, um, which I used to go to when I moved down to London when I was eighteen, um, fresh from kind of Nottingham. I moved here to be to become a music journalist, actually, funnily enough, um, and I used to go there all the time. So I, would pro- I was probably rubbing shoulders with him on the dance floor and not even realising. But it was everything he said about that club and that club night was 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 spot on. You know, going from playing a you know, something bizarre and bonkers to then playing a pop song next. It was just kind of, you know, that's that's what you could expect from from Bugged Out. But it was a very kind of weird fashion crowd, actually, I do remember. Um, so there were definitely pa- some parallels, but then a lot of differences to what I'd been used to in Nottingham. I felt like Nottingham and, and even Sheffield and kind of some more, more of the northern areas were a bit more um, friendly, whereas in London it felt a bit more, ooh, you can't really, you know, you can't really talk to people. They're very much sex. Se- segregated within their own groups and it's it's very much more cool um which i found a bit hard actually when i first came down to london but yeah um i loved him talking about that 
Yeah, there's a lot to pick through from what you said there. So I'm going to pick up on a couple of things that you've pick up on some of the things that you've picked up on. How does that sound? So <laughs> pick up a penguin. Number one, <laughs> trash. Yeah, it's one of those clubs I was very, very aware of, and I could probably now sketch you out what it would look like, the people who went there, and the, what the DJ played. I never went, like because you know I think I'd said on previous episodes I felt a bit shut out from the London scene because I could never actually afford to get down there very often. Um, you know, and that's why probably I was keen on building these scenes in the north and shining a light on that and kind of going to the club nights in the north because I felt, well, I, I can never get to this London stuff. But you're right, like, you know, that was a really influential club night. It keeps coming up in the interviews that we talked to. Anyone who was in London at the time mentions it. And two, yeah, the Errol Olkin uh, kind of thing. You know, he was kind of the king of the scene at that time. And he was really, I think he cut his teeth with Long Blondes in terms of a production sense. He did one of their early B-sides and then they brought him in for that that second album. And I think that, you know, we'll talk in a minute about, you know, the way that Dorian was quite candid about his illness. But I think what you have to understand is the Long Blondes ended at two albums and I think they would have carried on. And I think the sound would have continued to evolve more in that kind of electro direction. And that's why they wanted to work with Errol Alcon because he was kind of the king of that scene at the time he had his finger on the pulse of exactly what was cool frankly at the time and so yeah i think it's interesting that you bring that up because yeah you listen to their first album you know it's it's kind of scratchy or scratchy is the wrong word you know it's more kind of that raw indie pop sound but more with the rock side i guess than the electro but then second album definitely going in that more electro sort of direction and more experimental and yeah errol Olkin, i think was the the perfect person to pilot that Definitely. And he actually, I interviewed Errol Arkin once uh, when I was doing my stint at MySpace uh, on the MySpace bus. I remember sitting outside the MySpace bus at the front uh, and interviewing him. I've been trying to find the videos, all the odd videos of my interviews, but I think they've been scrapped now, which is which is a real shame. But he would just be an absolute dream to get on this podcast because there's just, as you said, he worked with everybody and he was the real... He was the person that, you know, you, you would get all the amazing stories out of him. Um, uh, so hopefully, Errol, if you're listening, uh, then please get in touch uh, using our email address that I said in earlier in the show. Gmail.com. Yeah, we are waiting. Another thing I picked up on um, was when he talked about the fact that they were pitched uh, against the horrors for when the horrors second album comes out. I know you love the horrors, Rick, and like it's not a secret, it's no secret that you are like a diehard fan. He actually, when, when he said, you know, five guys, and he, he called them a bit weird, and I sort of agree with him. I met the horrors once and um, ended up actually traveling back on a bus, a, a minibus from, I think we've talked about this before, but a minibus back from this like festival called tales the jackalope that was just so mm, badly mm. run um in derby but yeah they were they were quite interesting characters um but when he talked about the fact that he thought it was sec a bit sexist the reason why the uh the horrors might have done better than the long blondes i know i can sort of understand how that might have happened and i do agree that at the time that there was probably a bit of unconscious bias going on right rick mm. it's an interesting comment wasn't it because I'd, I'd never really drawn that line between you know the second album by the long blondes and then the direction that the horrors went in with he's talking about primary colors basically which came out in 2009 so I, I i kind of i understood it but it's one that i'd never thought about and yes i am a massive horrors fan to the point that yesterday was actually my birthday um and the happy horrors... birthday to you happy birthday to you happy birthday yeah, to ricky happy <laughs> birthday to you 24 hours late on that but um anyway I, I, it was fair, a fairly low-key birthday but the best present I got all day was that the horrors came out with a new tune uh, called Lout, which I've still not quite got my head around. They've gone 
like massively metal. But I'm digressing here, but yeah. Yeah, you are digressing. And can I just go on record to say, I sent you a birthday message yesterday. I don't want the listeners thinking that I hadn't said happy birthday to you. So I did. Yeah, and I think one of the things when he was talking about his illness, and and I was really, you know, sad to hear that he had a stroke when he was 27. And and the first thing that struck me was, uh, you know, he almost joined the 27 Club, which... If you don't know what that is, it is a, a lot of people who, uh, famous people, whether they're an actor, um, a singer, whatever it is, an artist, uh, have unfortunately passed away when they reach 27, for whatever reason that is. But it's, it's very well known. Um, in fact, Miley Cyrus recently came out and said that she's kind of went so because she was scared of becoming a member of the 27 Club. But yeah, mm. I think that was, you know, that was that was quite sad to hear. Um, but you, you, you did get a bit of a joke out of him with, with it, didn't you, Rick? Yeah, I think I think that's the thing with with kind of hindsight. He's, he's got more of a sense of humor about it to the point where he said, I think it was something on the lines of, you know, he saw uh, Jim Morrison from The Doors and he, he mentioned a few times how much he hated The Doors, kind of at the pearly gates of heaven and thought, no, I'm, I'm not I'm not going down there. I'm, I'm coming back. And, you know, because it references the fact that he did sort of, I think, medically die in three minutes. Yeah. And then and then kind of came back. And yeah, I think, you know, it was I remember the I remember the when the, the stroke happened and the band kind of split immediately i think i probably wrote the story for the enemy website at the at the time and it was such a shame because as a band i think they were so much on the up you know they had that debut album was kind of critically acclaimed the second album with errol that i think could take them in that kind of more electro and pop direction i think their third album they would have gone absolutely massive i think that would have been kind of their breakthrough from being kind of an indie concern and it, to be fair he said in hindsight, he quite likes the fact that they did those two albums, kind of a statement of intent and left it. But I also think they would have gone on to much kind of bigger and better things and were kind of, you know, stopped in their in their tracks by it. I suppose on the flip side, you know, also great to see in here. He's, he's in far better health now. You know, he, people who have strokes don't always recover the kind of their speech and, and the, you know, the ability to walk. And he's he's done that, which is just, you know, on a personal level, is just an amazing thing to see. And he's making music again with... Uh, gold top baby um which is kind of his solo project a lot more experimental than the long blondes and obviously i had to ask him the question do you think you'll ever bring the long blondes back and he certainly didn't um totally close the door on that my my the thing i've wondered is obviously the the giddy stratospheres film which we briefly talked about in the interview is based on one of their songs they're going to be having a premiere for that probably at some point this year when that's all allowed i mean what better time would it be than, than then to kind of reunite the long blondes and he didn't exactly close the door on that so i guess watch this space yeah fingers crossed um but we want to hear from you as always were you fans of the long blondes uh and if so what were your favorite tracks uh, if you can send them to us at demotapespod at gmail.com um and on twitter and instagram we are at demotapespod and we might start reading some out at some point um if you if you get in touch and uh, and something piques our interest um so yeah we'd love to hear from you yep do keep in touch listeners uh but yeah that's all we've got time for on this episode so all that's left to say is take care of yourselves and we'll see you on the next episode see ya